Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're really honored to have Dr. Nicole Willock on the show to talk about her new book, Lineages of the Literary, Tibetan Buddha's Polymath of Socialist China, published by the Columbia University Press in 2021. Dr. Willock, welcome to the show. Hi, Dagena. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. Um, let's maybe begin our interview with um, self-introductions. So please say a few words about yourself and how you became interested in Tibetan studies. Um, I, I, there's a long story and a short story on how I got into Tibetan studies, but um, I, I'll, I'll give kind of the abbreviated version. Um, I started uh, studying actually Chinese uh, uh, pretty much right after high school, and I actually did my um, BA in Chinese studies at Australian National University in Canberra. And as a part of that program, they uh, they sent us to China for a year, and um, that was uh, in the early '90s. And it was um, a, a really different day and age. Uh, but due to the fact that I was, you know, on a on a Chinese student visa at that time, I got to travel to Tibetan areas, and I was able to spend about three months in Lhasa at that time. And uh, it was a, a life changing experience for me, and. Uh, I think I approached Tibet at the at the beginning with this kind of um, certain I don't know young person arrogance, uh, and uh, that I I could understand uh, Tibetan culture through uh, through my Chinese language skills, and I quickly um, became humbled that that was not the case, and uh, decided uh, that I wanted to study Tibetan, and that was. Um, yeah, that was it. Like, I really wanted to do this. And my professor uh, back at ANU said, well, you know, you really need to study more language to do a, a um, you know, a program in Tibetan. And I said, of course, of course. And uh, then I just ended up finishing my BA in Chinese studies. And then I went and to Germany, actually, to do my 
first MA, and I studied under David Jackson and Dorje Wangchuk, and um, uh, I took classes with uh, Jan Orsobisch and uh, others uh, there at that time, and did uh, MA in Chinese, but a, a minor in Tibetan. And it was actually um, Professor Jackson who recommended Indiana to me. He said, oh, I think, you know, based on your interests and stuff, you should really uh, do your PhD in Indiana. And then uh, it was really in Indiana that I, I seriously, I, I studied Tibetan before, but it was through the, you know, incredible language program at Indiana University and under um, the mentorship of uh, uh, the late Elliot Sperling and uh, Gendon Repsell that I I devoted my my complete energies to uh, Tibetan language. And yeah, and that took me a while, but uh, yeah, that's, I ended up getting a PhD in Tibetan studies and uh, then religious studies as well. I did two qualifying exams. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I, I didn't know that you started out with uh, with Chinese studies. Um, and, and in the book, you also use a lot of Chinese sources. So so your impressive language skills really come through in the book. Um, so before we actually go into the book, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book, Lineages of the Literary? Um, how did you become interested specifically in these three Tibetan Buddhist polymath and, and their literary works? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it really started uh, after I was at Indiana University. I became increasingly interested in um, modern Tibetan figures who were pivotal in the in the 20th century. And I and I was studying religious studies at the time, and I oh I I felt like the 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 dichotomous framework of how um, Tibetans were in in China was just um. That was not, um, uh, I don't know, accurate's not quite the right word because all of these pioneering studies, you know, um, really led the way for, for my work. But, um, you know, Melvin Goldstein's work, Sering Shaki's work, I'm, I'm you know, deeply, um, you know, always amazed by their, their erudition and their scholarship. But I, I wanted to understand how um, Tibetan heroes in China were understood um, after the Dalai Lama left. So I was really interested in religious figures within um, in modern China. And it was uh, Gendon Rapsel who recommended that we start reading Satan Shaptrung's um, Rangnam or uh, autobiography in one of uh, the courses. I had. I was fortunate to have the flas and, and could study, um, you know, with reps in one-on-one classes at the time. And so we would, you know, it was very slow process at that, that graduate student stage of like, just painfully kind of reading through the text and translating. And, um, and then I, I really became hooked. I, I, the more I read, the more I loved it. And then I got introduced to other scholars of that time period uh, but I ended up doing my dissertation work on Satan Chapdrong's uh, life and works um, because I ended up going on the Fulbright Hayes to China and was able to just um, meet a lot of his former students and uh, and his disciples in the monasteries and people who were involved in, you know, actually m- uh, compiling his collected works and uh, and editing them and printing them, and so I, it was just a kind of a serendipitous um, 
thing that this that 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 happened and it was such a, a incredible um experience for me i learned so much through the scholars in china both monastic and at the universities and so i i really focused my dissertation on um satan chaperone jigme rikpe lojru and then it was Afterwards, I came back and I, I realized how specialized, you know, this was and how narrow. And I wanted to, uh, you know, move on from my book, um, you know, to make it more accessible to a, a kind of um, larger audience and and not just kind of be in this niche uh, Tibetan studies world that that exists. Uh, uh, so I I looked and I was reading and and reread my notes and and then you know I, it it always kept popping up to me oh there's you know this kepa misum kepa misum kepa misum means three scholars in Tibetan and and that's how Mugi Sumpton and Satan Shapchong and Dunkar Rinpoche were referred to um, you know so often when I was interviewing you know former students of Satan Shapchong you know they would always you know, mention him parallel to these other two scholars. And then, um, and then I realized, you know, that's, that's a way to, to kind of make this um, not just about one kind of exceptional person, but, um, you know, three really exceptional people. And I I felt like that would, uh, you know, draw kind of more interest in the work as well. uh, And, and add something to this uh, field and show that it's it's a, a Phenomenon, not, and I really feel like there's many other scholars I could have I could have looked at, um, but I ended up just concentrating on these uh, these three because that would tell um, you know it, it's a it's really interesting material and their lives are really interesting. So it started in grad school and then it, it evolved um, over time to to become uh, the book that it is. And also the uh, I think a huge boon in this whole process was receiving the the Robert Ho. Uh, Buddhist Studies Fellowship uh, administered through the ACLS because um, I I was teaching a lot and after grad school and really wasn't able to come back to the material with the attention that I wanted to um, give to it. And without that fellowship, I I know the book wouldn't be in its form the way it is. So it it was quite um, fortunate and I'm, I'm ever grateful for that. Yeah, congratulations on getting that really, really prestigious funding in, in our field. And and um, your book is actually really, really fascinating because, like you said, right, uh, we're quite familiar with um, works on Tibetan lineages and, and Buddhist teachers in the pre-modern period, however you want to define that. And in the post-1949 period, there's a lot more attention devoted to uh, Buddhist communities abroad in exile in India, for example. But one does wonder, right, what is the situation right, of, of Buddhist communities and lineages and teachers uh, within the PRC? So your book is a huge kind of contribution highlighting that. Um, so speaking about Buddhist teachers in the PRC, one major intervention of the book is that it complicates this binary model, right, that situates Tibetan Buddhist leaders active in the People's Republic of China, um, either as collaborator um, or resistance fighter. Right, so first, um, could you please tell us a little bit more about this binary model that you also mentioned in the introduction of the book? Um, so how has the story of t- modern Tibet and uh, modern Tibetan teachers in the PRC come to be commonly understood in this way? 
Yeah, I think um, I think it was actually uh, Robbie Barnett who first uh, coined this term, uh, this idea of a collaborator versus resistance fighter model, uh, and it, it really has to do with uh, did you know Tibetans either just collaborate with the with the state with the People's Republic of China, or did they resist the state? And and so in other words that. You know, from a kind of Western lens, it seemed like there, that there was only these two choices um, for Tibetans um, living in China: either they could collaborate with the state, or they could resist the state. And I, I felt this just didn't um, line up. It didn't match with the materials that I was reading that that were so much more complicated uh, than than this kind of binary model. And I think like the tendency in 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 you know, telling the story of modern Tibet is then to uh, sort of tacitly, um, or I, th- I don't know if it's even that conscious, but it's almost like, um, you know, once you get into the modern period, then it needs to be a secular story. And the so there's, you know, there's lots of biographies about secular figures, um, you know, Melvin Goldstein's pioneering work on uh, Baba Punsak Wangyal or, or, um, Tashi Tsering, you know, these, these biographies are, are pioneering and, and very important pieces of, uh, uh, you know, that, that we have uh, telling the story of modern Tibet. But it's almost like, you know, there's a, an implicit bias there because, okay, there's, you know, this founding of, of modern Tibet and therefore, um, you know, the, the Tibet in China has to be a secular story because, um, you know, China is secular. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm making it a little bit more black and white than it is, but, but that's the, the kind of reading that I always had when I was, I was, um, coming up, well, where do I place these figures who really straddle between both, you know, secular institutions and Buddhist institutions? And so how do I fit their work uh, in into, you know, the story of modern Tibet? And uh, I really, I realized that I, I, I needed to, um, you know, kind of come up with other, um, other methods uh, to do that. Thank you for clarifying that. And, and just to linger on this topic a little bit longer, um, in the introduction of the book, you commented on the conundrum uh, you faced upon taking up this project on modern Tibetan Buddhist figures active in the PRC. Um, specifically on here, I quote you, how exactly to study this subject matter without undue influence from polarized accounts of Sino-Tibetan historiography, unquote. Um, so what is the methodology um, you adopted in this book to help you kind of move beyond these polarized historiographies? Yeah, um, I think that's a, a really important and great um, question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I I really searched a lot and thought a lot about what sort of methodology I could use that would um allow the the voices of um, the scholars whose writings I was translating to really give voice to them to, to allow their voices to be heard and and what I ended up turning to was not uh, not sort of standard historiographical kind of theories um, I, I really I looked uh, kind of far and wide and what I found was that Sabah Mahmoud's idea so she's a feminist writer uh, writer on actually um, Islamic women and uh, the piety movement in Egypt. And I found her idea of moral agency um, and how she develops this moral agency based on um, 
Foucault's work, but she she takes it much further than Foucault and and Judith Butler and applies it to uh, you know uh, this sort of piety movement in Egypt. But but I thought about her definition and I I was like wow this idea of you know finding agency not not within this di- dichotomous framework and not emphasized on on the state you know not looking at agency in terms of you know uh, either collaborating with the state or resisting the state, but rather looking at agency as capacities for action. So what does that mean? Uh, You know, what is is someone's capacities for action within certain, um, within the grammar of of that situation itself? So, So in other words, like how do monastic scholars, so I took this idea and said, okay, how do monastic scholars then express agency? So this is, this is their own subject formation. This is how they became scholars. So how do they use Use that that education, that their knowledge, and and how and how do I read that in the different situations over time that they were confronted with as you know as individuals uh, living in the PRC, unable to um, you know under incredibly dire constraints sometimes how were they still ex- able to express their um, agency uh, within uh, within you know these very difficult uh, political circumstances and once I started asking the question from that angle, everything just sort of started to flow. And I realized I could incorporate their points of view. I could still deal with the issues of the state and politics that I, that, you know, obviously, you know, frame their lives. Like, you know, they, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have been who they were without the political, um, you know, situation as what it was. But at the same time, you know, I really, um, I don't think they were passive victims. I don't think they were uh, really collaborators, and I don't think they were really resistance fighters. I think they used their um, their own education, their knowledge, and they used it in in very astute um, ways to navigate a very very difficult terrain. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, speaking of expressions of agency and moral agency, uh, for that matter, um, we, we, we can maybe talk about the sources you use in the book a little bit. So um, it's actually unexpectedly really diverse, right? So you selected a really diverse collection of texts composed by these three um, Tibetan Buddhist polymath in the book. Um, they not only read these sources, not only represent a really wide range of literary styles and subject matters in traditional Tibetan literature, but they also sometimes, you mentioned, transgress uh, traditional Tibetan literary categories in the creation of new discursive territories, um, specifically designed to maybe suit their needs within the restrictive environment of the PRC. Um, So tell us more about these, you know, really exciting sources you have used in the writings of the book. Uh, what are some of their unique features and maybe some of the challenges you had to face acquiring and, and studying them? Um, yeah, that, that I, you know, uh, I, I really wanted to show that they were polymaths, like, and what that means, you know, having um, mastered different types of knowledge and, and really um, showcase that. And I felt like it wasn't enough just to say that I needed to show that and how they wrote in different ways. And, and really, I only, it's such a small sample of each of these scholars uh, collected works. I mean, it, it's really incredible and humbling when you study these great scholars, because you're just like, wow. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, Satan Chapter uh, you know, he has 13 volumes of collected works. 
books and and so on. Yeah, it's just um, you know, it's it's incredible. Um, but I really enjoy autobiography as a as a genre in English as well. So I and I had already translated a lot of Satan Chapter's autobiography for my dissertation. So that was a natural choice uh, to look at his autobiography. And then Mugi Sumpton also, um, you know, wrote an autobiography. Um, and those autobiographies, though, are not, they don't call them uh, rungnam. They don't call them namtar, uh, which is the the traditional Tibetan term for, for you know, bi- biography or, or hagiography is sometimes how it's translated. Um, they call their works um, by a, a, another category, which is jungwa jupa, and that is, um, it's hard to translate really that one. I, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, going back and forth on, on how to, on how to translate that. I think it was actually Professor, uh, Gyatso who, who, um, Janet Gyatso who, who helped me finally finalize it as telling what happened, a telling of what happened. And this is such an interesting choice because there are examples of, um, you know, this Jungwa Jipa um, uh, genre prior to their writings, but they're very marginalized. They're very few. There's only three that I could find and I list them in the book. Uh, but, you know, but what's interesting is that they um, completely acknowledge in their writings what they're doing. So they mention, you know, that, you know, that they're, they, they're not writing a, a Namtar, they're not writing an Avadana or Tokchu in Tibetan. They're writing this, this telling what happened, this Jungwa Jipa. Um, and they're doing that. And um, because, you know, they recognize that their lives are, you know, situated in this uh, modern era, in this sort of politicized era, I think. Um, and yet they really draw upon traditional uh, literary frames uh, to, um, outline their their life stories um uh satan chapter uh chooses this one of the the seven um uh seven characteristics or qualities of a higher rebirth to frame his uh entire uh life narrative so it's really interesting on how they both draw upon and change these these uh, literary categories, and the same goes for for essays. I mean, Dunkar Rinpoche is really interesting because he he really perfects the writing of uh, this kind of academic essay um, by taking a much more uh, kind of standard historical approach. You know, like dividing history up into different time periods and and uh, and chronological. Uh, um, you know, is making a chronology according to uh, sort of periods of time that he delineates, and and so, uh, and that's you know a really a kind of departure from other ways of writing about Buddhist history, which focus on on lineages or or you know past um, you know past lives, the the rebirth kind of. Um, uh, narratives that you get at the beginning of, of, uh, different histories and stuff. And so, um, yeah, it's just a, a really interesting to look at how, um, these traditional literary categories change over with their, their writings. And so as far as like accessing and acquiring them, it, it, it's not at all difficult to get a hold of, any writings, um, pretty much these days. It's that we have so many sources available to us, um, uh, through, uh, interlibrary loan and, uh, the, the BDRC, the, the Buddhist, um, 
uh, resource. Um, they just changed it. So we used to like the Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist Resource uh, Network. Um, so uh, Tibetan Buddhist Resource Center, rather. And, um, and you know, those sources are, are really easily available. I mean, I, I got the first uh, version, the 1987 version of Satan Chapdong's autobiography from the Indiana University Library. Um, I did have to, um, it was difficult when in 2004, uh, five when I was there to get the printed there. He's the only one, his collective works were the only one that I know of that was completely actually printed in the traditional way first. So in other words, his uh, completed collective works were actually printed at uh, the Tua Monastery uh, Printing House, which is a part of his monastic estates. There was a printing house that he actually founded in 1930s um, to print his uh, teacher's collective works. And that printing house was rebuilt uh, in the 1980s to print, to both reprint his teacher's collected works and then also to start his collected works. And so I was able to get um, that nine volume of his collective works from the monastery, but the other two scholars, Mugi Sumpton and Dunkar Rinpoche's works, were both uh, printed at the the Minzu Publishing House as well as the. Um, uh, uh, so yeah, they were just printed at the Minzu Publishing House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, thank you for uh, for you know going through these sources with us. We're gonna talk about uh, some of these uh, newer kind of categories of writing, more of the modern kind of essay types in the university academic settings uh, in a bit. Um, so let's go into the book now. Uh, so chapter one introduces the three polymath in both the past and the present. Um, here we learn that this idea is actually a resurrected one in the post Mao era. Um, so who were the original historical three polymath? Uh, sometimes I hear them referred to as the three wise men. <laughs> and, and who are the resurrected one now featured in the book? And also, um, what is the significance of this category of the three wise men of the Kepa Mison? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the Kepa Mison are, um, you know, the, so there's these historical figures that, that honestly we don't know they are in all of these historical texts, um, you know, from the, uh, you know, the Depta Numpo, like the, the Blue Annals or um, the religious history of Dome or, or Butun's uh, Chujung, like a religious history. So this is a this is a, a, a kind of um, uh, an important point in history because it's known as this uh, turning point between the the early diffusion of the Dharma and the later diffusion of the Dharma. So after the Tibetan Empire period, um, there was this sort of period of of, um, uh, of darkness of where the Dharma didn't exist or or was in you know in retreat at least at, at these certain centers, and um, you know after. Uh, after the end of the the Tibetan Empire period um, and the assassination of Lung Dharma, it's said that these original three wise men or three polymaths or uh, three scholars, they're also translated as Marsh Yakimini, uh, Yo, uh, Gejong, and Sangrapsel, um, left central Tibet and then they carried with them because it was dangerous at the time to be in central Tibet. Um, They carried with them uh, these different Buddhist scriptures. And they, I think they first went to Uzbekistan and then they went uh, to uh, then all the way, uh, you know, from, you know, kind of the the West all the way back to the East and landed in, um, in Dentique monastery. And by the time they got to Dentique, they were um, quite 
um, old. And then there was this young boy uh, called Gumpa, who later became known as Lachen Gumpa Rapsel. And then Lachen Gumpa Rapsel was then responsible for ordaining these, um, you know, the 10 men, uh, you know, who came from central Tibet seeking um, ordination. And among them is this very important figure, Alume, who, you know, is, is considered, um, he went back to central Tibet and, and started this, you know, is, is credited with, with starting this later diffusion of Buddhism. So, so the three wise men or the three polymaths, the historical three polymaths are, are, are kind of sim- symbols, I guess you would say of like the, of Buddhism surviving under, you know, the, the most difficult circumstances of the, the reign of long Dharma and the aftermath of, of Buddhist. Now this is Buddhist historiography and a kind of, um, I don't know, I think an idealized version of history because, um, you know, people like Luciano Patek and um, others have tried to study this period um, and really tried to to get the dates. And, and of course, Heather Stoddard also has a, a really important piece on this. But th- that that era of history is so fragmented and the historical record is so... Um, uh, unclear that the dates and and uh, the historical veracity of this is is really not known, but you know the people at Dentik Monastery, the the monks there, and uh, the people who come, you know, the pilgrimage and the Lade, the the kind of uh, you know uh, community all around Dentik, they all think that uh, you know that this really happened here, like this this um, ordination of Gumpa Repsel. Uh, was done by the by the three polymaths, the original three uh, historical polymath uh, Mario and Sung, and uh, and that's happened uh, at this place at this site in Dentique, and there's this cave um, that still uh, you know is said to have be the place where this ordination uh, took place. So uh, yeah, so and then you had asked also about the um, you know how that title of the 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 three polymaths then became resurrected in in the post mao era um you know this is really important so that that symbolism of of the title the three polymaths um uh, became a kind of uh, reference point for so many uh, modern day scholars. So they looked back to that period of, you know, this kind of era of darkness uh, after the reign of Long Dharma. And they realized, you know, that they had just went through a similar uh, period where, where Buddhism uh, had been oppressed and, and repressed. And they looked to the three polymaths, so Muge Samtan Seichen Chapter and Don Carlos and Shunle, and they realized that, that, you know, they're the ones who sort of carried the torch across, you know, this, this really horrible 20 year um, period. And they were resurrecting the Dharma in, in this new age, this new um, young Dar era is what um, the the sort of post um, Mao era is often referred to according to Tibetan scholars. And that's significant because that frames time, you know, the, the very essence of our reality is time, right? That frames time according to a Buddhist worldview, not um, according to, uh, you know, the, the, the pol- political leaders like Mao or, or Deng or the economic reforms that were, were initiated in the, the post, uh, you know, in the 1980s uh, under Deng's uh, rule. So um, 
you know, this is a really significant title, the three polymaths, because it shows, uh, again, agency. It shows how, uh, you know, Tibetans have uh, certain values and they're going to write and, and state those values and try to um, uphold those values uh, in, in, you know, even in the most difficult circumstances. So the three polymaths then becomes a, a really important uh, modern uh, symbol for the, uh, you know, the ongoing um, uh, you know, uh, how do you say like the, 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 it's testimony to their, their, um, uh, what do I want to say? Like their, their, their legacy and how they really, you know, are able to transmit this Tibetan Buddhist knowledge and practices and institutions, you know, even, um, you know, to the next generation, especially that's really the key to the next generation in, in the aftermath of, of the, the horrors of the, of the culture revolution. And prior to that, you know, the great leap forward and, and so on. So, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, thank you. It's really fascinating this this you know temporality, right? That it's uh, that it's there in this idea of the three polymaths as, as remembered by but the students of these uh, three Buddhist teachers, and and um, about the three polymaths themselves and how they remembered um, history and the world um, that they were a part of. Um, this is something that's sort of addressed in chapter two, where you looked at their autobiographies. Um, so two of the polymaths. Uh, Muge Samten and uh, Titan Shabdron wrote autobiographies. The third polymath, uh, Dungar Lozan Trinle, actually did not, uh, you mentioned in, the, in this chapter. And, and their autobiographies were in actually quite recent, <laughs> I guess, right, or, or relate uh, in 1993 and 1978, respectively. Um, so how do these autobiographies remember, um, uh, you know, their their lives right and and the parts of the kind of lineages that they were a part of uh time like you mentioned um tibet sino-tibet relations and also maybe the rest of the world right um you know at this kind of Im- important turning point the switching into the yangdar area um after mao and and the prc came into power um so you mentioned in this chapter that um some things are included while certain things weren't um so can you tell us bit more about that. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about the 1950s and how both Muge Sumpton and Seetan Shapdrung frame their memories of the 1950s is through uh, this idea of, of, of spiritual friendship, of, of having, um, of remembering the Sangha, the, the kind of monastic community and um, having, um, other monks who who were respected and had uh, these 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 similar ideals, and how these these were really uh, very well respected at that time period, and it's it's really jarring in some ways to read this um, because Satan Chapter especially remembers like meeting um, his uh, fellow throne holder. So Satan Chapter is um, he he he's an incarnate Lama, and he. Uh, shared the throne of six monasteries. One of them was Dantique, and 
he had his own uh, monastery called Tuck Monastery as well. So he he shared them with this fellow uh, throne holder called Satan Kempo, and Satan Kempo um, was killed. Uh, he was murdered um, in 1958, and uh, you know I only found that out from from my field work there. That is not in any of the texts. Uh, it, it's only. Uh, kind of alluded to in one other uh, text by Satan Chapteron, which is a history of Dantique Monastery called Dantique Karchak. And in that, it lists the different uh, Satan Chapteron and Satan Kempo incarnations and gives brief histories on that. And also like history of the of the monastery and how it was founded and each how each of the the sort of satellite temples were founded and their histories. Uh, and, uh, and so... Th- it mentions in in that text in the Dente Karchak that Satan Kempo uh, died in 1958, but it doesn't say how. And um, Satan Chapterung's autobiography also doesn't mention it, um, but he does go into this, you know, kind of elaborate meeting with Satan Kempo, and this you could just feel like this kind of sense of their friendship because um, they had been through some some hard times. Like as as young children, they actually fought, like physically got into this fist fight on the, on the playground, and they had to be kind of torn apart by their respective kind of mentors and stuff. And and yet they reconciled and became you know friends and here they are you know, um, uh, in you know I get you know how old were they they were like in their forties right so they were born thirty yeah the thirties they're in their thirties because they're born in the same year and you know so they're they're in their prime in so many ways but they see what's happening before them um, and you know there's no mention of land reform like that that the words land reform are not being used but the dates of and the dates that are given are all in uh, Tibetan dates uh, Tibetan calendars um, so you have to kind of do some I had to do some uh, a lot of comparing and contrasting and with uh, the these kind of uh, calendar uh, c- comparative tables that Dieter Shu did in order to resurrect the actual um, dates uh, that that where these events must have taken place and then compared them with um, the Chinese sources that I know, like there's these um, local gazetteers called the Difengzhi, and they uh, they have uh, very detailed, uh, you know, political events in them. Like, so, you know, 1954 is land reform in this county in Jinyuan, and, you know, 1958, you know, the this was this um, monastery was turned into uh, a commune and, and so on. So, so it was through like comparing, uh, you know, the the autobiographical information and these, you know, incredibly beautiful stories about, you know, this friendship and talking about the Dharma and, you know, and giving these teachings and then comparing that and contrasting that with what actually happened on the ground. And um, and then, you know, in Mugi Sumpton's autobiography, he actually gives uh, a long account of meeting Satan Chapterung in Beijing uh, when they're... Um, translating Mao Zedong's uh, collected works into uh, into Tibetan. And they're on this translation committee together and they share a room in Beijing together. And, you know, they talk about, you know, he talks about going to Xiangshan in, uh, you know, to the west of, of Beijing and, and visiting um, the Fragrant Hills and how beautiful it was and going to, um, you know, these different temples and um, and seeing the Buddha's uh, relics and, and so on. And so, you know, he also remembers 
views um, this time period uh, through this kind of lens of, of mutual respect and uh, mutual understanding. And when you think about that, right, um, it's so important in the 1980s because so many monks had to give up their vows. Muge Sumten and Satan Shaftong themselves uh, did not give up their vows, but they were forced to wear lay clothes. And But they did maintain celibacy throughout their lives, and they were very... Um, uh, that was very important to them. So in their remembering of the 1950s, they go back and they look at this time period as one where Buddhist values were respected, where they were able to meet His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama and uh, the Panchen Lama. They they remember when, you know, Mao Zedong and uh, Zhou Enlai respected, uh, you know, these these um, these Buddhist lamas and um, and so it's this kind of sense of respect and um, and importance they they had in in the state um, that's uh, you know that's crucial uh, in but in a yeah from a Buddhist perspective. <laughs> Yeah, so really interestingly, this chapter also brings to our attention the the 14th Dalai Lama or current Dalai Lama's um, uh, piece of work, uh, Munlan to Mao, which is kind of like a tribute to Mao, uh, which is dated to 1954. Uh, and you compare this piece of literary artifacts um, to the autobiographies of, of Mugia Samten and uh, Titan Shaptrum. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? And, and do they remember this period in the 1950s in a similar way? Yeah, I, I think they do. Um, one is that, you know, we see this kind of um, poetry, uh, praise uh, poetry uh, being used. And that's a really, I think, important thing is that, you know, this idea of poetics um, uh, and the use of poetics to to uh, frame how uh, people uh, express their their emotions. Like I think for monks, you know, they're they're there, there's a certain thing where you're not supposed to express your emotions uh, in, in a lot, there's not a lot of ways to get that out. Um, and what you see is that these, that poetry and um, especially plays a role in that. And, you know, we'll talk more about that in, in the, uh, when we talk about chapter three as well, but, but I think for what's important, I mean, Munlam Tamao is, a, it is a different genre of text. Like I don't, I don't consider it the same genre as the autobiographies at all in the sense that it is like it, it kind of follows a, a whole, uh, there's a lot of different examples in, um, in Tibetan history of, um, you know, rulers or the, the Dalai Lama, you know, praising a ruler of China. Um, that is, that's not really, um, I guess so new, but what I think is so interesting about this and what they, they, they have in common is this idea that, um, that there's a respect for the Dharma that, that Mao um, that's, that it's anticipated that the state will protect uh, Buddhism. That, that is, um, you know, like there's this, you know, one image of, of Mao as like a, a kind of Garuda, you know, like this kind of protector of Buddhist teachings. And, and there's that hope that, you know, that the state and that Mao himself will be a um, protector, like, you know, like in the Qing dynasty, like they were, you know, that like previous um, rulers, you know, of China. And um, of course, you know, that's, that's not the case, um, at, you know, but, but um I think there's that hope, and and that to me is also expressed in um, Muge Sumten and Seichen Shaptrung's um, 
works, but it's for a different reason. Um, it's for the reason that in the 1980s, you know, that they're trying to revive these traditions and they go back and say, hey, look, you know, there was a point in time where, you know, Buddhism was very well respected. And yeah, look at this, you know, remember this time period. Mm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And, and speaking of poetry, <clears throat> chapter three really dedicates to the poetic writings by these three Buddhist polymaths. Um, specific about the two decades uh, from the late 1950s to the late 1970s. So this decade also witnessed the Great Leap Forward uh, and the Cultural Revolution, of course, which created famine, chaos, and violence in the Tibetan regions. Um, so here you remind us that these poetries written by the three Buddhist polymath actually do not offer true-to-life exposés of what happened to them during this period. Uh, so, so tell us how you approach these these poetic writings and what they have revealed for us instead. Um, yeah, the the poetry. I mean, first first of all, translating poetry is really difficult. <laughs> it's really really hard, um, but it's so worth it. And at the beginning, when I was you know translating um, Satan Shaftong's autobiography, where some of the poems are from, you know, I I would skip over the verse. You know, I just would skip over it because it was just so overwhelming as a graduate student. I just couldn't I couldn't handle it. Like I was like, okay, this is just too much. I'm gonna just stop and like I'm gonna skip over this section and I'll come back to it later. And eventually, I did go back to it after I, you know, studied more of, um, uh, of poetics. Like I, I then, you know, went and studied Satan Chapterong's uh, kind of primer, the Nyanak Chidon, which is a basically an introduction to how to use poetics. And once I, I really studied how poetry works, I, I realized that there's certain formulas to it and, and how, uh, creative, how, how, poetry allowed for this kind of creative use of, of their, um, of expression of emotion that other genres just don't allow. Um, and, and it's really like, you know, through these, you know, some of these poems that you really get the sense of, of, of what happened, you know, during that time period. And, uh, you, it's nothing explicit. Like I said, like you, like you, um, you know, summarized, it's just, um, it's through references, for example, uh, of Satan chapter two Lung Dharma and how, you know, Lung Dharma himself, that, the the sort of let's use the traditional Tibetan Buddhist historiography here of like, you know, the evil you know, anti-Buddhist king Langdharma could not have even dreamt of the things that were happening at that time period, you know? And so again, you get these references to um, past Tibetan history, um, but how they apply in the present and how uh, they they felt about this time period, you know, comes through uh, these these poetic works in, in different ways. And I and so I really try to highlight how, you know, by paying attention to what a, what poetry um, uh, uh, gives to us, you know, as as readers, like we have to understand poetry more. I feel like in Tibetan studies, there's a um, there's still a lot of bias against poetry, like the, the, similar to the ones that I myself had, like one is hard Two, It's just like, it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of wordy sometimes. And, um, and it's difficult to get through, but once you understand that there are, you know, that there's certain frameworks that, that if you can just, you know, kind of get beyond, um, 
that first initial hesitation that it's so worth reading because it, it gives a whole other aspect um, uh, to you know their their lives and understandings of the world that really are not offered elsewhere in in the prose section. So uh, yeah, that's um, why I ended up really spending so much time on the poetry and and for Muge Sumpton, you know, he he does he creates these um, gur, you know, and gur uh, are these um, uh, it's a kind of more a folk style uh, type of poetry, not as ornate as the the Nyenak or the Kavya in, uh, inspired style. But uh, you know, he he talks about experiencing, um, you know, a certain insight into the the state of reality of being impermanent of this of this life, the impermanence of this life that we have, and this kind of insight from this Buddhist perspective on that impermanence when he's being struggled against in this, you know, in this, you know, kind of torture public humiliation session. And he he, you know, he, he's joyous. He says he's joyous. And um and he kind of exclaims like in this this sort of joy of this and and and, you know, I read this and I was kind of horrified like, at first. I was like, how can he experience joy in this? But it's only because you have to really read it in the context of like, he he's talking about this, having this kind of spiritual realization and he uses poetry to express that. And that's another reason why I think the poetry is so important is because it gives voice to this, these kind of insights of into, um, a kind of spiritual insight that that um, that prose, you know, also does not uh, allow. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you definitely showed really, really well in this chapter that you know there's affective work, um, you know, that can be found right in in this particular genre that it's not available for us uh, to look at elsewhere. Um, um, chapter four um, now turns our attention to. A really fascinating figure, one of the three polymaths, uh, Dungar Rinpoche, who is both a Marxist theorist and a Gelug Buddhist scholar. Um, so here you discuss how he redefined Tibetan identity within the parameters of the CCP state discourse of ethnic eth- uh, minorities, um, as well as how he reinvented the idea of religion uh, in Tibetan language discourses. Um, so based on this work, um, how did he narrate the uh, history of Tibet and its religions? And how did he understand also Sino-Tibetan relations? Yeah, Dunkar Rinpoche's, uh, um, you know, uh, work on uh, the merging of of the religious and the secular in Tibet is probably the, um, one of the few works that was translated into English. And in, in uh, I think it was um, I'm trying to think of when it was translated into the English. I think it was late um, the late '80s, and but he wrote it a decade before. He this was the first his history Chusei Tsongtrao. Um, was the first Tibetan language history about Tibet written in, in, in China, as far as I know, like that, that I, I don't, I haven't seen a uh, kind of history of Tibet in Tibetan prior to this work. And so this is an incredibly important contribution and he does it. He, he does it in the frame. He writes it in the framework of um, the, the sort of Marxist um um, Chinese Marxist teleology of like, you know, of different, uh, class periods and, um, and he frames Tibetan history within that, um, on, 
on one hand, like, and, and, you know, we have to draw attention to that because that is the, you know, basically it takes these different eras of Tibetan history and, and says, this is the, you know, this is this feudal era and, and so on. So that's there, but, but within that framework, the richness of detail has been so overlooked by so many, um, I think historians, it's just, um, it's so important this work because, uh, you know, he gives rain titles and he gives detailed, um, uh, you know, analysis of the the inconsistencies sometimes in dating time periods, and uh, and so his take on history is much much more than just simply a, a Marxist take on history, and he's the the one scholar who who often was was simply flat out called a collaborator uh, with the Chinese, but I always felt that was um, a bit unfair to him. And and since then, honestly, he has really been resurrected. Like in, I think in, um, in Dharamsala, like two years ago, there was a, a big symposium on his, um, on uh, the, on, uh, I think it was the 20th anniversary of his death. So it must've been in, in 2017 already now. So several years ago, five years ago. Um, and that, um, that event really showed what an incredible scholar uh, Junkar Rinpoche is, and um, and his works are, are are becoming more well read now. Um, I I was just reading um, Jose Cabazon's book on Sarah Monastery, and he actually looks at some of uh, Junkar Rinpoche's histories of Sarah um, in that in that work, and um, and so. But what I found very fascinating about when I went back to to read this text is how. Um, one, he finds room within um, this this Minzu discourse, you know, on this sort of state ethnic mi- uh, minorities, to make room for Tibetan history, and and that is, you know, it's really inventive. Like it's it's one of those. Um, you know, moves where he's, he looks at, you know, where is it, you know, in this, um, you know, the framing of, of, uh, of the state, you know, how the state works and where can we, we plug in Tibet. And he uses that discourse of, of Minzu, um, you know, of, of national, nationality identity or ethnic minority identity to really, you know, highlight and showcase uh, Tibetan history. And also he brings all the um you know he brings all of these different um religious traditions like um or schools are are you know like the sakya the kagyu and uh, the bun and so on and he oh he calls them all chuluk and chuluk um you know is of course like um you know the system of chu and chu is you know dharma um but that 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 term is just sort of a, a translation, the, the Tibetan translation of the Chinese term Zongjiao. So he is, and but prior to that, like in the Tibetan histories that he looks at, like there, the, rarely is Chuluk used as a as a term. Like historically, it's not used as a term for um, all religions, right? It's used as a term for um, a specific Dharma way by a specific school or, you know, the, um, and so he, he's renegotiates this term that's in Tibetan discourse, but then he uses it in such a way as to give a, a kind of a common space for all of these different Tibetan traditions, um, not just Gelug from where he comes, but also Bun. He, you know, he really highlights um, uh, the importance of Bun history in his work. And so it's in this way that he cleverly uses like the kind of means available to him to, you know, 
write this, you know, pioneering history in Tibetan language. And that's, uh, that gets read by, you know, the next generation of, of scholars and becomes such a, uh, you know, a pivotal piece um, for understanding um, uh, Tibetan history. And within that Sino-Tibetan history, right, but I, he's no fool. Like, I, I think Dunkar Rinpoche, you know, he he had to sort of toe the, the, the party line in some ways and recognize, um, like, you know, that in the, the UN dynasty is usually when um, uh, Tibet, um, at that time period, like when Dunkar Rinpoche was writing, um, you know, Tibet uh, became part of China during the UN dynasty. Um, and that was a sort of party line at that point in time. And since then, under Xi, um, it's really changed a lot. And now um, it's kind of Tibet has always been a part of China for forever. Um, there's no there's no date on that. And, um, you know, this kind of apocryphal, um, you know, framing of, of history is what the, the Xi Jinping kind of um, the, the you know the CCP does best like you know it it re um it, it's it ignores the historical facts that have happened over the time and kind of creates this other timeline of Tibet as a part of China and Dunkar Rinpoche really pushes back against that like it, he he you can see in how he would never accept like this idea that um you know Tibet became part of China um before the Mongol era like even but even within his treatment of the Mongol era, like on one hand, he says it on paper that Tibet became part of China, you know, at this time. Uh, but like the way he frames Tibet and the way he frames the Mongolian titles, it's so different than the English translation of, of, um, of how we read this. So it's much more nuanced. And, um, and so I hope um, that's what I contribute to this. This is a much more nuanced reading of, of Dunkar Rinpoche's works and how he really um, uses Tibetan framings to think of the idea and uh, the concept of religion within the PRC and how um, that really changed with his interventions. Yeah, it is. You're you're definitely doing that in this chapter, and so it seems that uh, Dunkar Rinpoche is is becoming also is creating a kind of historiography and then and creating a certain kind of historical narrative that's it's also its own kind of lineage, uh, which is explored in in chapter five here. The chapter five is entitled "Diverging Lineages," and here you investigate how these three Galuk Buddhist polymath navigated both the Tuku system, right? This lineage of reincarnate lamas and also the academic institution in the post-Mao era that they were also, um, you know, a part of. Um, so here you point out that although there are attempts to revive the Tuku tradition and had failed, other more secular and academic endeavors were more successful. Uh, so tell us more about these two diverging lineages. Yeah, this, um, so this, this chapter, uh, you know, sort of steers a little bit away from the focus on on um the the literary per se but then talks and really brings to fore this this how um how these lineages are so important till this day and how and how um i don't know i think you know really um fought over in so many ways. So the Tuku institution um, was not revived until officially, at least like allowed to be revived in China until 1991. That's when the state directive um, came. And of course, um, you know, by that time, um, both the Panchen Lama uh, had passed away and Satan Shapchong had passed away. And they were, they, they were the, the, 
um, spearheading um, the revival of the Tuchel Institution, but changing the the kind of the requirements of what it means to be a Tuchel by recognizing children when they're older. Um, and that's one of the really um, interesting things that you see is that they they said, you know, that kids should really show um uh, you know, be older when they're recognized in order to see if their temperament is suited for this, which I found really fascinating. Um, just because like, I, I'm a mom too. And I, I often think like how it's so young to get your kid like away from their parents at, you know, five or six. Like I always found that like a kind of horrifying thing about the Tuchel institution is that, you know, that, that often, you know, not all the time, like sometimes the parents would still stay near the, the monastery and stuff, but, you know, um, and I felt like, you know, Satan Chapter recognizing that, that, you know, like it'd be good to recognize Tuchels that are a little bit older. And so they've had that, you know, the formative parent, you know, period with their parents and, and upbringing. It was really, um, you know, kind of innovative, and and yet that that never went anywhere right that that whole idea i've i've never you know really heard that anywhere else like it just seems like that that idea um uh, I, I've I I don't know of it being uh, pursued in any way maybe there is some place but I I don't know of it and then um you know they also just um, never got the institution, the state recognition of the institution that they had hoped for um, during, uh, at least during um, Satan Chapjong and the Pension Lama's lifetime. Um, Muge Samtin and Tonkar Rinpoche were still alive um, in uh, 1991 and, you know, both lived, um, you know, to see the, the Tuku institution reinstated. Um, and, you know, and it was at that time, shortly after uh, that time, that Dunkar Rinpoche himself was able to return and give Buddhist teachings at his um, uh, monastery where he was recognized as a reincarnate lama. And, you know, there's he, you know, there's been a sort of conflicting reports about whether um, there's been another Dunkar Rinpoche uh, recognized or not. But from what I understand um, is that he he um, wished um, not to be recognized again so that his uh, incarnation lineage has died out. And then the Satan Shaptrung and uh, Satan Kempo um, lineage, so he, the throne holder of uh, both the Satan uh, seats has been revived, and uh, but the Satan Shaptong has stepped down from his role, um, kind of as an incarnate Lama. But Satan Kempo is still quite active, um, so that's one side of of how um, you know these kind of institutions uh, carry on, um, and how their um, you know how their contributions sort of um, continue. Or, but in a kind of um, uh, disjuncted way. Um, but where, um, whereas, like that whole um, the control over the religion uh, has become so strong uh, from the state that I think that's what's causing this sort of stuntedness, really, in the Tuku institution in China, because there's so much state pressure um, on Tukus in China. Um, whereas the secular and the academic um, endeavors of all three lamas were incredibly successful. I mean, they trained. Um, uh, you know the 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 next generation of scholars who are all leading figures in the field. I mean, you know, Chen Ying is one of the most um, eminent uh, historians in in China, uh, and he, you know, he was Dunkar Rinpoche's student. Uh, Muge Sumpton's projects in uh, in Sichuan Province are still ongoing. There's regular, um, you know, kind of. Um, uh, I guess you call mini conferences or or uh, praising his contributions, and he um, really uh, spearheaded these kind of um, small um, 
academic institutions, like at these schools in, in Sichuan province that are still, as far as I understand, um, active uh, to this day. Um, and then uh, Satan Shapchong um, trained uh, people like uh, Pu Wencheng, who is also like one of the great uh, historians uh, in China and writes a lot on, in Chinese on Tibetan history. And um, and then there's uh, Dawa Loju, who is the head of uh, Drungchar, which is a literary magazine. Who And this literary magazine is so important because it really um, uh, gave the framework for modern Tibetan literature and uh, secular literature where, um, you know, Tunchuk Gyal, who's the kind of forefather of, of, of or the, the father of modern Tibetan literature. And, you know, he was Dungkar Rinpoche's student. So there's this kind of connection um, between uh, their efforts uh, in both religious fields and in secular fields that they they cross over you know that, that there's that they they go in between they weave in between these um, these two and um, you know make it possible um, you know for the further study of Tibet in in China yeah thank you and at the end of the book and also the end of this chapter of um, diverging lineages, um, you remind us that the other lineage, or the, the more academic one, is, is perhaps also facing a lot more kind of suppression nowadays. You remind us that, um, quotes, the boundary breaching acts between the religious and secular through diverse writings and educational efforts seem to have ended with the death of this generation of polymathic scholars as the PRC tightens its control over religion, unquote. Um, so you also point out that it's perhaps no longer possible for an incarnate lama or geshe to also serve as a university professor in the PRC today, as our three polymaths once did. Um, so what is the state of the current generation of Tibetan scholars in Tibet today? Uh, yeah, that I think that's a great question. And I... I um... I don't know. I don't feel as qualified to say much because I haven't been back to China in a few years. But um, I mean, the the current generation is still um, wanting, I think, to learn Tibetan and, uh, you know, really teach in Tibetan and have a thriving Tibetan studies um, uh, field. Uh, I think that's the wish of many, many scholars. But I do think that the the political situation is such that, um, you know, that it's becoming more difficult. But at the same time, you know, there's still the most Tibetan texts that we have are are still coming out of the PRC. So I'm hopeful uh, that, you know, Tibetan studies will th- continue to thrive in the PRC. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the current policies um, do um, make me concerned. I, I have heard of things such as the Tibetan studies programs um, being closed down um, and, and things like that. But again, I'm not an expert in that. So I'd, I'd you know, defer to others who, who do, um, you know, who do get back to China and are, are working on the ground there today. Yeah, thank you. That's something that we can look forward to um, in other scholars' work, definitely. Um, so, Dr. Willock, I think we've taken up enough of your time already. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing your your wonderful work uh, in this book. Uh, but before we close our interview, um, we have one final question for you. Uh, tell us something that you're working on right now so we can anticipate more amazing work from you. And also, uh, what is one recent book um, that you would recommend to our listeners. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm working on um, uh, this Tibet Reader Project um, that uh, is going to um, uh, 
it's going to be a, a game changer. It's work, I'm working with um, a team of editors uh, with Carol McGranahan, uh, Lama Jep, uh, Dejan Pemba, and uh, Dunjap Tashi, uh, Rachel Dunjap Tashi, to, um, to put together a bunch of uh, different uh, sources, uh, some never translated before, some previously translated works on modern Tibet. And so it's uh, going to be coming out with Duke University Press in a couple of years, but it's um, or maybe next year, but it was probably two years. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting project um, that, that, that will come out soon. And then I'm also working on um, the poetry still, and I'm working on an article with Nancy Lin on poetic aesthetics and and uh, in Young Chenma, and even going into uh, Longchenpa and Tsongkhapa and and uh, yeah, and the Fifth Dalai Lama. So I'm I'm looking forward to finishing that up in the next uh, month or two. So. Wow, exciting. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm really, really looking forward to that reader specifically. Uh, so in, it would be a wonderful resource to teach, especially. Yeah. And then as far as books, um, yes, uh, Jose Cabazon's Sarah Monastery is amazing. I'm, I'm really, really enjoying that. And um, uh, yeah, Dominique Townsend's new book, A Buddhist Sensibility, also um, fantastic. So there's lots and lots of works in Tibetan studies right now that are, that are coming out and there's not enough hours in the day to read them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for, for these wonderful recommendations. Definitely. Um, so our listeners also uh, feel free to go out and pick up a copy of um, Lineages of the Literary. Um, I'm sure you, you'd love it. So thank you so much, Dr. Will, again, for, for devoting your time and energy uh, to share with us your wonderful book uh, in this interview. Thank you so much. Thank you, Daigena.